This is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, March 17th, 2018. This is episode 135. And today, we are going to be discussing Tomb Raider. Not the video game. Although... A trailer, a teaser trailer for Tomb Raider, the next video game, dropped just this week. We might mention that. We're going to be talking about the new Tomb Raider movie starring Alicia Vikander, whose name I'm probably butchering because it's some Swedish, Norse, something like that. And, and frankly, that's not where my ancestors came from, so I don't bother learning how to pronounce the names correctly. You'll just have to live with it. And then... Once we're done with the covering this topic in our usual and inimitable rambling style, we are going to be discussing having a sit down with the great, the notorious space commander, John DeLaRose. And I'm sure he has won some awards, but, uh, I can't remember what they are. He also held the Happy Frog Awards just a few weeks ago. And despite the fact that we at Geek Gab did not even get nominated for any of those awards, we have graciously deigned to allow Mr. Delarose to come back on the show this week to talk about his brand new book, that is coming in a few days, the stars entwine. But before we get to all of that, John, how was your week? It's been a good week, busy week. Work's been hell, so I'm glad to get out and do some geeking. It was D&D &D, &D week, and, uh, and I caught some Tomb Raider. Did, did they have a celebration over the Knoll? They they had the my players had quite a celebration. They celebrated by digging deeper into the dungeon, uh, the 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 significantly less protected by roaming bands of rogues dungeon and slaughtered a bunch more monsters. <laughs> well, there you go then. That's players for you. It was it, it was a it was a nice change of pace from the last few games where they mainly explored and and stole treasure uh, quietly. And this time they just went in guns blazing and, and slaughtered. Because they figure, we don't want to leave any more survivors behind to become long-running campaign nemeses. Yeah, because they know that any NPC that survives, I'm just going to tack rogue levels onto. <laughs> so, I went and saw Tomb Raider, which I wasn't planning on until late last night. Um I'm going to say this on the air because I think this is an interesting story. Um, I was, ah, eh, never mind. We we don't have enough time for all that. We got to get to John's stuff. I went and saw Tomb Raider last night. You went and saw Tomb Raider a couple of nights ago, and I've been looking to hear what you think about Tomb Raider because it has not just one but two of your favorite actors on in the movie in the cast. Um, I was really happy. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to see it because we weren't necessarily going to talk about it on the show, but I saw that uh, Dominic West and uh, of The Wire and Walton Goggins were in it. Um, and Wal Walton Goggins plays the crazy villain on Justified, and, and he, he's pretty typecast at this point. Oh yeah, he, his role in Justified was was awesome, and he was also in The Shield, uh, and he did a great job with that. Uh, and then and then all the little parts he's had since then have been just wonderful. Um, yeah, and, and uh, <laughs> I regret I regret to inform everybody that the the typecast hasn't changed. And he guess guess who he gets to play in in Tomb Raider? Yeah, he gets to play the crazy villain. Um. He was in The Hateful Eight. He played the racist uh, sheriff who they meet at the very beginning of the movie. Um, he was in Predators. Um, he's going to be an Ant-Man and the Wasp coming up. So uh, 
It's his season. He was in Maze Runner, The Death Cure. Uh, I, I, he's just fun. He's just fun. Yeah, to he is. Very, very. Oh, and he played a crazy villain in American Ultra. There you go. Which I actually kind of enjoyed, so I don't know. All right. Now that we've gotten John's fan worship out of the way, what is it that you uh, – did you like the movie? Did you enjoy it? Would you recommend it to your friends? Yeah, it's it's all right. It, it's what I thought about it when I left the theater is I thought that I had a lot of fun watching it, and it felt like um, – I don't want to be too down on it, but it felt like, yeah, that that was like a, a fun adventure movie without the character and charm of a Raiders of the Lost Ark. And when and and for 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 discerning cinephiles of our age, we always have to sort of we we can't help but compare this type of adventure movie to Indiana Jones. And it doesn't it doesn't reach those heights, but it's it's Fun. They and one of the reasons why it's sort of light on on charm and character is that they waste no time. Uh, this this movie is edited lean and mean. There's uh, uh, they they don't waste time getting from plot point to plot point. When you think, well, that's that was kind of fast that they got to that. They don't care. Let's um, just let's just move on to the violent stuff. I uh. Apologize for the scatological nature of the following comment. I'd been drinking water heavily before I went into the theater and then was eating popcorn. So I drank water heavily while I was sitting in the theater. And when you drink a lot of water, there are certain biological processes that culminate in a strong urge to go and take care of them. Um, and I just sat there in the movie and every time I thought, oh, this looks like it'll be a slow spot, I just didn't get up to leave. And it turns out that like a minute later, something really important happened. So I could not have left to go to the restroom anytime during the movie without missing something pretty big. Um, so yeah, I, I am agreeing with your previous observation. There is very little slow time after the initial couple of scenes. And even the initial couple of scenes where we're just learning about her and her background are you know, she, the movie opens up. This is not a spoiler. It's not technically a spoiler if it happens in the opening scene of the movie. Um, she's in an MMA fight. Opening scene, she's in an MMA fight. Then she goes back to her job as a bike courier. And the very next thing that happens, just a couple of minutes later, is she's in this massive chase, driving through the city on her bike with uh, about 30 other bike messengers trying to catch her. I thought that scene was fun, but that is indicative of the pace of the entire rest of the film. MMA fight, two minutes of not doing something, bam, massive chase all across London. Yeah, in fact, they probably could have cut that even shorter, all the, all the time in between the chase scenes. Uh, Bar One Studios in the chat uh, ma made a review of that and said that they wasted almost the first act. Uh, I, I tell you what, I, I found time to get up and leave sometime early in the movie. Uh, it was after those fun chase scenes, but it, it, it spends the beginning of the movie just establishing, for anybody who knows nothing about Laura Croft or Tomb Raider, hey, this is this is a girl who is all about action. She she challenges herself physically all the time so that they, they can establish that, you know, she's she may be capable of the completely unbelievable feats you're about to see later in the film. Um, by the way, folks, because coming to this show is educational as well as entertaining, I'm going to introduce you to a technical term in radio. It's called Nat Sound. And I am going to have some Nat Sound for you right now. That Nat Sound was the sound of me ripping the pages with my notes on it out of my notebook so I can go over it. Natural Sound is short for... Nat sound is short for natural sound. Whenever you hear somebody on the radio who's standing in front of a highway and you can hear cars passing in the background and people honking their horns, that's called Nat sound. Um, and now you know a little bit more about the radio business that you didn't before. But I have right here notes that I took on the movie. 
Um, and I want to just run through them real quickly. Uh, the ones we haven't already covered. Um, the storm scene when they get to the island. There's an island, they get to it, bad things happen. The, the movie, and I, I'm going to say this out up front, is mostly the first reboot tomb, tomb Raider game. Mostly the first reboot Tomb Raider game, um, which came out in 2013 or 2011. Do you remember? Oh, I don't. I don't remember the year off the top of my head. Okay, it's it's a pretty good game. The original Tomb Raider, by the way, came out in 1996, and I am correct. It is 2013 that the reboot came out. So the most of the core of the movie is based around the events and an interpretation, reinterpretation, revamping of all the stuff, basically with, oh, it's a big spoiler. I'm not gonna, I don't wanna talk about that just yet. So if you've played the game, you know the basic setup. There's a mysterious island. She wants to go to the mysterious island. Their boat crashes and they're on the mysterious island, okay? That's not a spoiler if you know that the game is based on the first Tomb Raider reboot game in 2013. So. The problem I had was that entire crash scene where there's a big storm overhead and waters and waves rushing in. I couldn't see what the hell was going on. Nothing. I could not tell what was going wrong. And I was in the fourth row. I was almost directly under the screen, right? Almost close enough to reach out and poke at the screen. And I still couldn't see what was going on. There was just too stroboscopic for... Uh, clear visions, clear, be able to clearly see it. Um, skipping ahead, this is a Tomb Raider movie, which means there are lots of puzzles because that's Tomb Raider. The big problem I had with the puzzles in the movie is they never showed details on any of the puzzles except one very, very late in the movie. They would show you the puzzle They would that, that you think there needs to be a solution to it. So you're kind of listening you know, watching, waiting for the solution, then they will show her having already solved it, and they never show the solution. They never show that she's being clever or that she's thinking through something really, really, um, she's thinking through something really, really clever. She's intelligent. She's well-educated. Even if she didn't go to college, university, she's well-educated. They don't show you that. They just show her having solved the puzzle. Not even solving the puzzle, just having solved the puzzle. And uh, I think I'm comparing it to National Treasure, which did it much, much better, where you get to have Nick Cage's character explaining all the little clever things he's figured out. And I, I don't even want to vouch for the historical accuracy of anything in National Treasure 1 and 2, but it was a lot better because then you get the feeling that his character really is clever, really is highly intelligent, and well-educated in these subjects that he is presented as being an expert in. They could have done it much, much better, um, but that would have taken more work, and I don't think Hollywood writers really like that. Um, the movie is, in a lot of scenes with certain traps, kind of a Last Crusade ripoff. A little bit. Uh, not huge, but enough to be noticeable. And especially in this day and age, it's like lightsabers, right? And this is how it's like lightsabers, folks. <laughs> I'm about to. I'm about I'm to gonna, this is going to be some impressive gymnastics. I'm wait. I'm ready for this. Explain that. So, lightsabers were once ubiquitous in science fiction back during the pulp age. Everybody used them. Um, movies, serials. Uh, that is movie serials, not, you know, Captain Crunch, movie serials, serialized movie shorts that used to play at theaters. And then you would go back and see uh, the next chunk of story the next time. They always ended with a cliffhanger hook. Um, books, whatever, they all had laser swords, ubiquitous, everywhere. Then the boring assholes of science fiction came along threw out everything fun into this giant trash heap, flushed it away, banished all the cool stuff and all the fun stuff. All the cool stuff and fun stuff went to comics and went to 
Japan and went to France. Not in America. Boring in America. Whatever reason. But they still have these movies. And so George Lucas and Steven Spielberg come along and they recreate these movies that they learned about in film school, like Flash Gordon. Because George Lucas originally wanted to make Flash Gordon, he couldn't get the rights, so he instead made Star Wars, and he brought back lightning swords, or brought back laser swords to Star Wars. And now everyone thinks that Star Wars invented laser swords, and so no one can use laser swords since 1977. All right? 40 years ago. 40. No one has been able to use laser swords for two generations without people calling them ripoffs of Star Wars. Even though Star Wars was the ripoff from lots of other stuff. Star Wars now owns laser swords. DW? In a, in a similar way... Can I chime in here? Because uh, I, I'm not supposed to come on yet because you guys are still kind of talking about other things. But I love laser swords. <laughs> Um, and there is a return of laser swords in independent science fiction. I don't know if you're about to get to that, but, uh, but it's happening. I, I, I just finished Kursova magazine number seven. And, uh, what I love about Adrian Cole's serial in there, which, which is a classic serial style, like you're talking about is that, you know, the, he had me once he, he said, we have a star lens fans want this. So in a similar manner, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas also resurrected a ubiquitous character type, picked it up out of the trash heap where it had been abandoned, blithely abandoned by generations of writers, the archetype of the adventuring scholar. And this goes all the way back to the Alan Quartermain stories in the 1800s. The adventuring scholar or adventuring archaeologist, many of which were based off of a real man, including Indiana Jones. But everybody had gotten rid of all that stuff. So when Indiana Jones came along, and, and it must be said, the only reason they got such definitive control over these tropes is because the movies were so immensely awesome. Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars were both incredible blockbuster movies for good reason. And now Indiana Jones owns the adventuring archaeologist type. And so ever since Indiana Jones, his very first movie came out, anyone who creates an adventuring scientist or an adventuring archaeologist like Laura Croft Tomb Raider, like the gentleman from National Treasure, like uh, Nathan Drake from the Uncharted series on the PlayStation, all of them are, whether they are or not, are titled Indiana Jones ripoffs, even if they're not. So my last note on my paper is this. Um, in this specific case, with this specific movie, it's not just that they've got uh, what people call now an Indiana Jones character or an Indiana Jones-esque character, but it, they borrow specific stuff, weirdly specific stuff, from the Last Crusade. Um, and it goes... Uh, anybody who uses an adventuring archaeologist type, I would enjoy seeing that archetype rescued from the clutches of Indiana Jones, especially as the movies have gotten to be so awful recently. But what I don't like is actually really stealing ideas and concepts from the Indiana Jones, one specific movie and specific theme, uh, plots, traps in that movie. So that was the one thing I did not like. Those are in fact three or four minor things. However, I thought the movie was fun. I really enjoyed it. It is not a movie I'd go buy or watch again, but it was enjoyable for the time I watched it. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to give a disclaimer. I did not feel like I wasted my money. Now, that's not a backhanded compliment because I only had to spend $1 to get into the movie. Huh. So seeing 
an entire movie for $1, it would be hard to feel like I had been cheated out of my $1. But even if I'd spent full price for this movie, even if I wasn't reviewing it for this show or watching it so I could review it on this show, I still would have felt like I got my money's worth. So, do you have anything else, Dorno? Well, well, I feel largely the same way. I, I, I think for a younger generation, a new generation of moviegoers, I would... You should show them Raiders of the Lost Ark instead. If, if, if you like going out and see new movies, seeing what's coming out of, of Hollywood or wherever, um, and you like adventure movies, uh, you can you should see this movie. I, I wouldn't steer you wrong, but in the genre of adventure movies, you're just you're just better off seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark. All right. Um, I don't have anything else to say about Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, other than they had a bunch of previews before, and most of them look awful. Uh, um, yeah, it's uh, very sad. Um, there, uh, not enough melting face in Tomb Raider. It definitely could have used more melting Nazi face. But there weren't any Nazis in Tomb Raider. Oh, that's, that must be the problem. They should have ripped that off. Um, so would you care to do an introduction on our guest? Oh, look at that. We are almost exactly on time. We were but two minutes late to get to when we were supposed to be introducing our guest. And I will point out on my behalf that that two-minute gap was caused by our guests so we are actually exactly on time to the minute is that impressive or what hey when you're good you're good um introduce him john delarose space commander john delarose is on the show take it away Dornall. you did it that's his name john delarose he's on the show thanks for coming on you don't want to say anything about his past uh, uh the, his murky and mysterious past is perhaps working as a slaver for Ruritanian pirates. I I I feel like that could be topical. I I, I was gonna go with his his public persona as the most electrifying Hispanic science fiction author in America. The he most electrifying. Wow, I like that. They use recently, that. Recently, recently been accused of stealing plutonium from. A national laboratory in Tennessee. Not going to mention that at all. He's well. I, you know, he wanted us to keep the supervillain identity secret. But since it's out of the bag now, uh, what's what's the plan? Is are we going to get uh, death raid or laser sword? No, no, guys. Um, I am. I am working on a secret mission for Space Force Command. Uh, the plutonium is going to be used in our plutonium nuclear drives so that we can outrace Russia to Mars. By the way, the National Laboratory in Tennessee, I believe, is Oak Ridge. I'll actually be in Tennessee at the end of the at the end of June. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, John, uh, I think this is the only thing we need to talk about, but you have a. a new book that you're just starting working on and another new book that will be coming out. I'm, I'm always working on a book. So that, that doesn't, uh, that, that, that's not news, <laughs> but I guess I, I, coming out with books won't be news either. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be like that. Like, you know, George RR R. Martin fellow. I'm going to, I'm going to be trying to come out with books every couple of months here. So, uh, so, you know, it's, it's a harsh mistress trying to, trying to accommodate that schedule, but you know what? It's better for everybody. So your new book that's coming out is called The Stars Entwined, right? Yeah. The, so this is actually the first one I wrote uh, ever. And I started writing this. I, I was just screwing around in, in uh, high school English class. And she, she uh, my teacher, gave an assignment where she was like, do a creative writing thing. And this was, I, I haven't done much creative writing at that point. I did a little, uh, I did a little role playing online uh, on IRC chats. If you guys ever, are you guys as old as me on that? On that oh, front? yeah. IRC, okay. old school. Okay, cool. Yeah. So if you recall, there used to be like a, a role playing community on IRC and it was awesome. And uh, I don't know if it was actually awesome or if I was 15 and I didn't know any better, but uh, in my nostalgia, it's awesome. So 
I, uh, I'd done that and I kind of started translating that a little bit into uh, this creative writing project, which I haven't talked about this yet on this front, but you know, I basically was a big Star Trek Deep Space Nine dweeb at the time. And I just wanted to like make a better Deep Space Nine as it was kind of going off the air. And I kind of, I made like this like spy tale. I, I, I didn't do section 31, but I, I started, I started doing that with this and uh, you know, eventually like, you know, within a couple of weeks I realized, you know, well, I can't sell this or anything if I finish it and I would like to sell it at some point probably. So I'm just going to take the Star Trek out and I kind of redid it. And then I restarted it from there. And over like 10 years, I restarted it a zillion times and then finally finished the book for the first time in 2012. It was complete garbage. And, uh, <laughs> I might, uh, I, I might put portions of that up, but, uh, but you can see how bad of a writer I used to be. And I rewrote it from scratch in 2014 and I still wasn't satisfied from it with it. So I rewrote it from scratch last year also. And uh, now I have a beautiful novel that is like, I mean, it's so polished because of how much, how many times I've rewritten this, that it, it's just, you know, I'm loving it. Um, so I basically came up with my whole space opera universe over the time. A lot of the rewrites in there was actually redeveloping a universe, making rules, making aliens, uh, figuring out sort of the geopolitical past and future. I wrote out, I wrote out a big timeline, you know, not, I didn't do it like J. Michael Straczynski did for Babylon five, where he did a million years into the past and a million years into the future. But I did, you know, 500 years into the past and 500 years into the future. So I've got this, like, I've got it dialed in and I'm super excited about it. And I'm going to be hopefully writing a lot of books in this universe in the future also. I'm stunned. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Put a lot of work into it. <laughs> so I'm this not stunned. I am replying to people in the chat. So Oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so that's that's uh, it's it's going to be straight up space opera. This this is a spy tale. Um, I it's I I didn't want to copy a James Bond sort of thing, so it, it's going to be a little different than you're expecting, and uh, it's definitely it's got a lot of intrigue, got a lot of hiding within an alien culture sort of thing, and uh, a lot of loyalties being tested, and that's 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 kind of the theme I wanted to explore there. So, what's what's the scope? Is is it Babylon Five, Deep Space Nine, all the actions contained to you know a, a claustrophobic space station where you know you can't get away from your enemies, or is it going to be a spacefaring, globe-trotting sort of experience? Uh, this book, it it I would say about halfway in between, uh, kind of those extremes there. So I started it out, like I said, you know, you'll, you'll notice it because I start out and I have this like station I set up and then like the first third of the book is all on a station. And that that is what I was setting up originally. And and then I kind of, you know, wanted to expand it from there. And, you know, since I don't have budget constrictions in words, I can I can kind of do what I want. So it, it you visit a couple of planets. Uh, it's in, in this book, at least. And I think most of the time is spent on an alien starship. Uh, but, you know, that's a traveling starship, so it's not exactly confined. I, I tried to take a, you know, whereas Babylon 5 and, and Deep Space Nine kind of presented this, like, epic war that, that's developing. Um, you know, this is, this is definitely, like, the season one where, like, the rumors of war are starting and it's, it's just starting to pick up. And I did it from, like, a very, you know, I, the way I write it, it's a very tight perspective. So you're getting the events from two people's perspectives uh, in, in their geographic locations as they move about. Uh, but, uh, but definitely it's, it's meant to portray a backdrop of, of a war that's going to escalate to crazy epic proportions. So um, I don't know. I'm talking, I'm rambling a little too much, but it's all right. I think the question that's on everybody's mind in the chat is how much are you looking forward to the solo movie? Oh boy, um, am I looking forward to it? No, no. How much are you looking forward? To? No, that, that was my answer. It, it, in, in in that flat of a tone. You answered with a question. Yeah. What do you think this is, Jeopardy? <laughs> um, I, I don't think anybody's looking forward to the solo movie. I mean, it, it it looks, you know, I mean, one prequels suck. I, I you know, I've I've rarely has there ever been a prequel that's been pulled off well. Yes. Babylon 5 did it, but that doesn't count because it's Babylon 5. Um, the Babylon 5 in the beginning movie was excellent. 
but I've never seen a good prequel outside of that. I don't think. Um, well, the problem with prequels is that they go back and they're trying to, it, it does one of two things. Either it makes the events that seemed weighty and punk and, uh, thrilling and evocative imaginatively evocative in the later work in the or the earlier work technically that was published earlier it either makes those events seem trite and a lot stupider than you thought they were um or it uh just has no tension it feels mechanical yeah. like there's a checklist of stuff that they have to hit to get you back to uh to get everything set up for the actual story you saw, and it's there's just no surprises. Yeah, in the and I think we had, I think we had the latter with Rogue One. I mean, while while it was like it was all technically done right, and they technically hit all the little nostalgia points, like you knew you knew exactly where it was going. So you know you, you couldn't care about the characters because from minute one you kind of knew those characters weren't going to be around anymore. Which I thought was a mistake because people seem to like those characters much more than anybody in the Last Jedi. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and how much are you looking forward to uh, Ready Player One? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I never read the book. Um, pe people kind of warned me off of it. They said it would just make me mad. So I. I you know, I have, I have no, no, uh, no horse in the race for real. I, uh, I read ready player one and I, I have a, uh, I have a write up of it on the Castelli house blog where I post. So if anybody is interested in hearing what I think about ready player one, it is, and will be there. Um, all, all I know is that we've been dealing with, Hollywood selling us nostalgia for years now. What uh, are, are we going to watch the ultimate nostalgia story that's written just for that? So it's it's like a uh, nostalgia. It's a, a nostalgia times nostalgia. Yeah, it's nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, here's the thing. Squared. It's, I. I can't think of a good way to say this because the actual phrase I'm going to have to use because we're, you know, PG rated here, um, does not clearly communicate the sting of feeling that I should be communicating. But a lot of this movie is Steven Spielberg, because he directed it, patting his own back. Um, where it's nostalgia for movies that Stephen King made. At one point in this movie, there's a T-Rex running along a road. Oh, no. I, I'm not making this up. I just saw it in the trailer last night, folks. A T-Rex running along the road who grabs a, a car and starts eating it. Um, yeah. The the only phrase I can think of to describe that is so, you know, rude that I can't say it. I'm not going to say it. But still, it's like Stephen King is just patting his own back, saying... And, and he knows that was a popular movie, obviously. Everybody knows it was a popular movie. And there may be a way to do that where it doesn't seem like kind of this smug, uh, aren't I so awesome? But I don't, I can't think of it. On the, on the other hand, like, I mean, if you can't reference yourself, like, you know, who can you reference? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm just hoping it doesn't indicate that Steven Spielberg is dropping down the deep hole of narcissistic, self-referential crap that has blighted the latter years of Stephen King's career. Um, so we shall see, because I, so I know you guys are going to watch it and then and then roast it. So, oh man, I shouldn't oh. do this either. Do it. Do it. No. Do it. No, I'm not going to. It's okay. I'm good. I, I, I will tell people, though, if you're interested in The Stars Entwined, I've added a link to that specific um, book in the uh, description below the chat. Um, and if you are also uh, interested in his other books, 
when you link to that, there's a uh, there is a uh, you Hyperlink can click on an author name to get to all of the rest of his other books. Not all of them, because because our, my original one that, that from when we came on the show. So for for those who don't know, I started in military science fiction before my steampunk novel. And my original one's gone now. It's uh it is out of print, and the company that published it is gone, and it's it's probably not going to come back into print print in the near future. So I, I'm seeing it. My Amazon prices are like eighty bucks for my book. Huh. Yeah. I'm glad I bought an ebook of that when I had the chance. <laughs> Um, I don't think there's a danger of that for my for my new books, but that's that's kind of why I'm excited to launch a military science fiction that I own. That's my universe, uh, so I can play in it kind of when I want, rather than uh, rather than kind of be at the whim of other publishers and the like. So, who owns the rights to that world? Um, it's a company called White Wizard Games. They own Star Realms, and I, I have a cordial relationship with them. Um, but I don't, I'm not aware, you know, that right now they're, they're not, they're not plan. They've got maybe other plans or something like that. And they are not, um, looking to bring it back into print anytime soon. And, uh, they declined a sequel. Um, you know, I never, I never really got a reason why, but, um, yeah, I, I've got a cordial relationship with them, but, but they are the rights owners. So I'm, I'm a little stuck with that. Um, but with the stars entwined, you you have all the rights. So when is yeah. the when is the movie coming out? When's the movie coming out? Um, as soon as somebody uh, gives me a check to make a movie, <laughs> so I'd be down. Or 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 ask me to option it and gives me a check so they can make a movie. Either way, um, I'm happy to have a movie as soon as there's a check. <laughs> oh, that that reminds me. That no, that reminds me. Seriously, uh, another friend of the show. Uh, is a mill SF author and an actor. So you could probably get Nick Cole to help you with that. <laughs> Nick Cole. Would Nick Cole play my guy? My So my guy's a little younger than Nick Cole. I, I've met Nick Cole in person. Um, I mean, Nick, Nick's a pretty charming guy in person though. So, I mean, there is that like as, as a benefit, um, you know, I'd cast him as the villain. Oh, you know, so I'd, I'd make Nick do the, the kind of like, um, so the, the villain uh, is a uh, alien, um, an alien leader who's uh, kind of ramping the aliens up for war, and uh, I, I think uh, I think that's where I'd want Nick to be. Um, coincidentally, um, speaking of breaking into the conversation and changing the subject, for those of you who have not read Ready Player One. I have included a link to my review of it, to my scathing review, widely popular, widely infamous uh, among Ready Player One fans in the description underneath the video, so you can check that out. Nice. Um, yeah. So this year for me is going to be, I'm going to be, unfortunately, I have a bunch of book ones still in my back catalog, so uh, bear with me. For people who are waiting for sequels to different things, um, obviously Star Realms, like I said, isn't going to happen. Um, that was that was good. I was banking on that. I was I was planning on that kind of being my series, um, and then I had a couple other books kind of in the wings. Uh, you know, I wanted those ready for publishers in case they had interest. After I kind of got a little popular, I got a little popular, and and uh, obviously, you know, publishers are uh, don't don't care about economics at this point, but. Uh, so, so I ha I'm releasing those because because I've got them ready and they're good, uh, but but it'll it'll be a sec before we get to sequels, unfortunately. All right, well, I was looking forward to steampunk sequels. That's going to happen. So I've I've written book two of that. It's just um, waiting for a cover, waiting for proofreading, and I'm uh, I've written I'm about thirty percent through book three right now, and I've got a novella. Uh, that's uh, that's also set in my universe. Uh, that's done. So this summer, uh, it's gonna be summertime, probably July, August. I think uh, you're just gonna you're gonna get flooded with this stuff. It's gonna be good. Nice. Yeah, and uh, then uh, I don't know. My problem is I just have too many ideas too. <laughs> it's hard. As far as sequels go, like 
I I don't know. Um, I don't know if other authors have this issue too, but I while, while it's easier to write sequels because you've already done the world building, you've already done the character sort of concepts, and so you can just kind of crank it out a little easier. I, I have fun in exploring concepts personally. So it's like I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm like I'm in the middle of my third steampunk book and you know I'm just sitting here and as I was telling DW at the beginning of this, oh I uh, I've got a space I've got a space force idea um, <laughs> and I want I want to I want to make a space force book now and that's just too exciting to not do so it, it slows me down on my sequels. <laughs> <laughs> um, now. There was another project that you posted information on to the uh, that you shared information on with me um, in a chat in a private chat. Can you talk about that yet? Which one's this? I you can name anything. I, I'm I'm pretty open. The the one the one where you were having someone you posted several uh, examples of art mockups. Oh, the comic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this is uh, this is more military science fiction. Um, so I'm going to be I'm going to be focused there, other than my steampunk and alt hero. Uh, there's a lot of people waiting for alt hero too. So I'll just say right now, it's it's in Vox's court. He's a little behind on um, certain things because he's he's trying to get the comics uh, really cranking first, uh, which makes sense financially. So uh, so I'm I'm uh, I'm kind of waiting for Vox Day to uh, give some feedback on my last work there, which which is which has been a, a while, but um, it, it'll be coming. Um, this is another another one that I'm going to be publishing through Arcaven Comics. Uh, it is the Ember War. I'm doing a comic book adaptation of Dragon Award winner Richard Fox's military science fiction novels. Um, this is this is huge, and I can't I can't overstate how huge this is because Richard Fox has sold hundreds of thousands of books. He he is such a bigger author than people realize, and this is kind of how this is kind of how indie is deceptive, you know, just from what people understand. You get a lot of publicity about these big name authors from Tor or Bain or whatnot because they've got publicity machines constantly, but there's indie authors who are outselling anybody from those companies. Uh, Richard, Richard Fox routinely outsells John Scalzi, for example. And uh, the Ember War is ha has a huge, huge fan base. So I'm working on the comic adaptation of this. Um, the first issue is drawn. I'm gonna announce, I'm gonna announce the artist here. The artist is, uh, this is never, never before announced. So Geek Gab exclusive. Um, the artist is Jethro Morales. Jethro Morales actually has worked on the Green Hornet and has worked on Deja Thoris uh, for uh, who's is a Dynamite Comics, I think. Yes. Um, yeah, he's he's done both of those books, and uh, so he's a veteran artist, kind of kind of at that like B level pulp character status, and that's why I wanted him for um, for a military science fiction series like this. So, um, what is your opinion of the recent okay there have been a lot of drama in the comics community for the last year or so one of the things that happened recently is idw who publishes uh, all the hasbro lines and a bunch of other stuff who uh, were at one point a great prestige company they lost uh 91 of their profit last year they had 91 drop in profit uh millions of dollars that they no longer have and the founder of the company has now been forced out because of that, the CEO. Get woke, go broke is the new phrase that started making the rounds, and I love it. I think it's perfect. It's a great get phrase. Get woke, go broke. If you go sock just, you go social justice warrior in your comics or whatever, people start turning off because you're just making propaganda and not particularly interesting propaganda at that. If you're going to crank out propaganda, it has to be interesting. It has to be good or people are going to hate it. They used At to least make me. V for Vendetta. If you're going to make propaganda, make V for Vendetta. Right? <laughs> um, but then he's been forced out now. Um, and at the same time, this was leading up to him being forced out. DC, who has been kind of trying to prop up the comics industry, went really wacky SJW with their um, with their uh subsidiary or ancillary lines that they were just launching like a, a new young adult line and a new young kids line to try and 
um, bring in younger comic readers and make them lifelong customers. And instead of doing that, they decided to go nutso SJW. What's the deal? Um, I, I think when you've got a company, especially like Hasbro or like DC, you've got uh, you you have a brand there, and that brand is legacy characters that people care about. People care about GI Joe from their kid days because they had either the action figures or they watched the cartoon or they read the old comic book. So if if you're you've got a built-in fan base of you know say call it a hundred thousand people, and if you consistently tell that fan base here's books you're just going to buy it anyway because uh it's got the it's got the brand name on it screw you we don't we don't care about making this book for you this book's not for you you should you, you sh you're too entitled for thinking that this book is for you we're we're making it for these people over here this hundred thousand people we hope are over here uh we haven't actually done studies on that but we hope they're over here uh you know so they'll they'll buy it and you guys you guys can go stuff it um when you tell your fan base that obviously you're you know People will buy it over time. I mean, you know, I, I talked to Douglas Ernst. He's a uh, he's a comic book reviewer on YouTube and he kind of popular guy. And he uh, he constantly he still buys Amazing Spider-Man every month after month. And I talk to him every couple of months. And I'm like, Douglas, why? Why? <laughs> why are you buying it still? Just stop. And he's like, I have to. And uh, so, so they, they do do a good job of getting that habit. But the thing is, that habit's only so strong in 10% of your customer base. So you then tell your 90,000 to go away, and they do go away. And, you know, over time, you know, if, if you start losing nine-tenths of your customers over and over and over again, you got nothing left. And that's that's where you lose your money. So I think that's that's the thing with legacy brands, especially if you want to make propaganda. It's like you said, like V for Vendetta is is just Alan Moore's own creation. It's just his own thing. Um, and he can do that there. Uh, and and the people who are interested in checking that out might check that out because they don't already have an established Superman audience who's, you know, Superman is suddenly an Antifa fighter or something like that, that nobody's buying Superman for that. And, that, and, and you have an expectation of what you're coming in uh, for your brand. So it's really about just don't lie to your readers about what they're expecting. So DC Comics is going woke. Marvel is kind of staggering a little bit back from going woke, but it still has a, a bunch of really bad things in their lineup. Um, I, I don't think they're staggering back. Well, that's a great question. Um, with, the, with the Captain America announcement uh, of what's his name, like TC Coates or whatever his name is. Tom um, DC. Yeah, however you pronounce that, um, it's uh, you know that's that's frightening. But on the other hand, that that move might have been made because of, of how far comics have to be have lead time. Uh, might have been made before this new editorial change. So I, I don't know. But for right now, they aren't really even walking it back that much. Um, and at the same time, they've still got a lot of uh, SJWs making comics. They've just moved to new. Uh, titles and at the same time wizards of the coast this week has you know basically shot up a flare saying that they're woke as woke uh two flares actually saying they're woke as woke the first one happened when i was at one of those rare intervals when i'm not on twitter um and so i have no idea what exactly the story was the first one that wizards of the coast shot up was changing all the texts on their cards to be gender neutral oh gosh Weird. and did you hear about this? No. Okay. Neither. Yeah, they're they're switching from uh, Magic the Gathering cards that refer to he slash she. They'll just switch to use they in card descriptions. And it doesn't, doesn't even sound like it's going to save ink. And <laughs> someone also said that they were getting rid of a lot of artwork that was deemed to be, uh, I don't know, catering to the male gaze or something. Did you hear anything about that? No, that's news to me. Okay. I, I, could, I could see that happening for sure. And too bad. then, and then, um, they announced that elves or some elves who have a particular blessing of Corellian in the Forgotten Realms setting were going to be every morning when they woke up, they can choose to change their gender to be male, female, or neither. Um, and this is official written into the rules, which along with other stuff makes it with Pathfinder having gone full SJW, which it is. And where's the coast now going full SJW? Because 
social justice is like being a little bit pregnant, okay? You're never not just a little bit pregnant. You're just pregnant, and you have it's how far along are you? Are you a week pregnant or a month pregnant, first trimester, second trimester, about to pop? Whatever it is, it's not, you're never just a little bit pregnant, right? Well, it seems to be the case in the vast majority of instances that you're never just a little bit social justice either. That when it starts small, doing otherwise defendable actions that indicate that they're falling prey to social justice, either because they've hired people who are social justice or they've been badgered into it, or they're afraid that they'll lose business if they don't go social justice or whatever, uh, or them becoming a brand new convert to social justice, whatever the reason is, Wizards of the Coast is going social justice, and I predict it's going to get worse and worse and worse. That's just my prediction, um, but it is true. It is going to happen because you're never just a little bit social justice. And with Pathfinder having gone, that's like 90 to 95% of the role-playing industry, of the sales and role-playing that are going to drop off. And you're going to see happening in role-playing what's happening now in comics which is 50 comic shops across the country shut down last year, went out of business. Small, independently owned and operated shops. There was one person who set up this store. It's been his dream his entire life to have a comic shop. He developed it, developed the clientele, went into business for himself. His business has been collapsing and taken away because Marvel sales are abysmal. They're ridiculously abysmal. Um, they're disgusting. Diversity in Comics did a great show about this uh, in the last few days, two or three days ago. So check it out if you can. He'll tell you exactly how awful the sales are. But what my point is, is that those same collapse in sales are going to hit the RPG market. And what's going to happen next? And it may take two or three years. It took three years with Marvel before um, everybody, before they could no longer lie about the sales collapsing and, and can no longer hide the fact that 50 stores uh, shut down. You're going to see that... Uh, gaming stores are vulnerable to the same sorts of problems that comic shops are. And you're going to see local, your friendly local gaming store, FLGS is the term. You're going to see a wave of failures hit that if Wizards of the Coast continues like this. And I don't see any reason why they wouldn't uh, in two to three years, I'm guessing. Um, and that's going to be very, very, uh, very, very dispiriting. And, and if you've never run a, a gaming store or talked to someone who's run a gaming store, uh, you should know that they it is already a really, really poor business model. They operate on almost no margins. Um, a lot of them, especially around here in the, uh, the social justice bubble of the Pacific Northwest, uh, the successful ones are all making their money off of drinks. Um, the, most of them, most of them have a beer license. Some of them have a liquor license. They'll have, it'll be a gaming cafe where you can order food and get a drink and hang out with your pals and and play a few games. It's a lot of fun to go to, but they're operating on razor thin margins. Oh, it's terrible. And and, and I, I'm not. Our RPGs have never been a huge source of income, but magic is. And and as soon as magic stops being uh, the bringing in a bunch of money every week, uh, a lot of these shops, the ones that aren't selling food, are pretty much guaranteed to go down. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I, I've already seen a couple game shops go out of business in my area. And, um, you know, ma magic is it. Magic's like 50% of their income, typically. And, you know, it's, it's tightly controlled. Uh, you you know, you, you either uh, the, the packs are, are what you can sell them for. And you've got board games in there too. And, and what, what happens invariably, I've watched people come into these stores and they go, well, I can get it 20% cheaper on Amazon. And they argue with the owner and the owner's like, well, I got to sell it for what it is because I got to make a little bit of money. Yeah. But, but part of the problem also is, is it, as a game store, you can't just be a game store. You have to have space for people to play also and meet also. And that's how, that's how you develop your clientele. So you, your real estate prices are so high just because you have so much dead space where you can't sell product also. Yeah. That, that reminds me of, of a, there's a great store that I went to in Salt Lake city that began as a sort of adult, uh, high 
I say I want to say upscale board game shop. They had they had a few tables to play out. It was very high quality, and they focused on Euro games, just regular board games. And they had only been in business for two or three years before they had to bend the knee and start selling magic. Yeah. And because they did not want magic kids in there. I even spoke with the owner when I first came in. I was like, this is a wonderful, wonderful store. He says, yeah, because I don't want magic kids in here. Uh-huh. And they, they had to start selling magic. They could not make money any other way. And then eventually, like you, like you were saying about t- space, they had to move to a bigger space just to offer more floor space. Yeah, ma- magic's where it's at. So, um, but you know, I think I think magic has reached its peak. Um, you know, I, I uh, the the thing is the the thing that confuses all this is where DW talks about how social justice kind of kills. Um, it is it it's like it is like driving a rusty nail into a tree, right? Um, you know, y- you might not see it, right? It, it you you might think, well, maybe there's not enough sunlight, maybe there's not enough water, maybe it just died over time. Uh, those those things are happening too. That's that's the thing with all these products is they are that all of them have invariably like created a collector's market. All of them have invariably flooded the market. All of them have invariably then offered sub quality product to what they had flooded the market with prior, and they tax social justice on top of it. It's it, it's like I I don't know maybe maybe it is just the type of person that that goes into the social justice element just doesn't know how to run a business, but. But it, I can predict this sort of thing, you know, with, with dead on accuracy every single time. Um, so my I've got a lot of thoughts here. Not not one of them is predominant at this point. But the one thing that I am thinking is that uh, for people who are have the funding to put together a nice game, uh, I'm talking about a tabletop role playing game and uh, who can um who can deliver a great product not just with nice art but a great product the next two or three years are going to be a prime time to try and start to steal customers from D or trying to provide the thing is too it's going to be real easy to replace dungeons and dragons real easy because lots of people have already done it they've already you know there's first edition second edition 3.5 all those are still easily acquirable legitimately for people who don't like to uh you know pirate stuff don't like to bootleg they're available legitimately um and then they're available for free through the system reference document and uh the osr movement has done clones of it and so dnd is now its own worst competitor if it starts going down, if 5th edition starts going down, if Wizards of the Coast starts going down because they killed Magic and D&D at the exact same time, they killed or are killing Magic and Dungeons and & Dragons at the exact same time they expect their company to survive this. Think about that for just a minute, folks. Um you're in an industry that's not actually an industry. It's a hobby industry, right? Very few people ever made their money full-time doing this compared to just about every other industry. And it is easily duplicated by an obsessive fan working in his house for decades to create exactly and precisely the game he wants to make. <coughs> um, and because it's a hobby industry and because competition is so easy there's basically zero bar to entry in this market you can just buy a page layout program type up your notes drop it in the page layout program and you can publish something on one bookshelf and it'll look like crap unless you bother to do some basic graphic design and get some art or whatever and the better you can do as far as that goes the better you'll sell but the barrier to entry is very very low at the low end and we see there are tons of people selling in this marketplace. There are new games, new micro games with micro audiences every single week, multiple new games. And so the there are lots of things for Dungeons & Dragons players who hate it to switch to, not the least of which is a clone of 5th edition. Um, and so this is just... And so it's a good thing for the people who like non-social justice role-playing is because 
it's much, much easier to replace Dungeons and Dragons than it is to replace Spider-Man. Hmm. Yeah, uh, because yeah, it is because Dungeons and Dragons at the end of the day is people getting around a table together and kind of making up their own thing, right? Yep. So, so uh, you you have a a more collaborative creative process where you're really as as a product just trying to enable somebody else's creation versus here read this it's a, it's an active participation thing i'm going to plug a micro game that uh that i don't have anything to do with uh, <laughs> but uh it, it's on right now it's called post world games and and they're actually putting out an omnibus of their 19 different fantasy micro games that's on kickstarter right now i my interest in this is that i've backed it um, and I, it just looks really cool to me. So the, these things, there are opportunities out there uh, to to make a living doing this, I guess. Um, you know, I, I, these guys have a hard time, obviously. But I, I also like to support them because um, in these kind of environments, they're pushing the boundaries of creativity. And actually, if I'm looking for inspiration or looking to draw inspiration for something like this to, to try to twist things up or make it a little more fun, I feel like I'm going to get something more out of that than I'm going to get from like a corporate product that's trying to regurgitate 40 years of something, right? Um, and there are already competitors circling the water for Dungeons and Dragons. Mark um, Kern, the lead designer for World of Warcraft, um, is making his own video game and role-playing game. We had him on the show cool. uh, a few months ago to, to talk about it, and he showed me his mock-ups, and he has the money he made World of Warcraft. He has the money he needs to put into making a role-playing game. Um, and he's been designing one. And so there are people out there that are ready to eat Wizards of the Coast lunch and who can do it with a product that is essentially identical to D&D &D except for a few monsters. Because those are IP, right? Those are protected. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. That sounds great. <laughs> so... Um, so my uh, comment on this is that the next two to three years are a perfect time if you have the money uh, and if you have the chutzpah and if you have a base to make competitor D&D &D, um, now's the time to do it because D&D &D, I predict I'm uh, based on the following assumptions one nobody's just a little bit social justice okay that's the major um, premise. The secondary premise or, premise or minor premise is get woke, go broke, you lose sales. So the conclusion from that, right? It's a simple syllogism. The conclusion from that is Wizards of the Coast is in a lot of trouble because they got woke with both Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons and they're going to only become more woke over time. So that's it. Now is the time if you want to be a competitor to Dungeons and Dragons, even if you're just a hobby publisher, even if you're just doing this because you're a lawyer during the day and you do this in your off time, now is a great time to step up. The only thing that makes me wary is the same thing that makes me wary in the indie publishing space. We don't have a lot of time to cover it, but we've mentioned it before. I am really, really worried that there is a monopoly on... Uh, PDF distribution and print-on-demand distribution in the role-playing game sphere, that is one bookshelf, which is also, uh, you know, drive-through RPG and RPG Now and a number of other sites all run off the same company. And they are, uh, they're not fully SJW, but they are easily bullied by SJWs. I've seen product taken down from those sites. And at the, on the other end with eBooks, there's Amazon, um, which I'm worried is going to, slide into this cabal of Facebook, Twitter, and Google, who have now become full-on SJW enforcement agencies, YouTube being a subsidiary of Google, I'm worried. Very, very worried. Um, so, I don't know. Now's a good time to strike and then build a relationship with your audience, build your own independent marketplace that people can come to buy your stuff even if they don't right now, in the future, if Amazon starts to crack down on wrong thinkers, uh, on, uh, you know, it, it, it would be good to have, as an author, as a game designer, a personal relationship with your audience so that um, you have some place to go if Amazon decides 
to screw you over. I'm not, and that is not a prediction. I'm not predicting that to happen in the next two to three years, but it worries me. Yeah, I definitely have the same worries. Um, all right, that's uh, that's the end of my rant. We are out of time. We're over time. Just a little bit, though. Um, do you have any last words, uh, Mr. Delarose? Yeah, Tuesday. Buy my book, The Stars Entwined. This is this is what I'm here for. I'm going to be hitting the pavement hard next week. So I apologize that my social media is going to be turning from fun memeing and stuff to uh, shilling full time. But I don't apologize that much because I got to make a living. So pick it up on Tuesday. Thanks. And his uh, link to buy that is in the description of the video. Any last words, Dorno? Oh, thanks for coming on, John. Thanks for uh, everybody in the chat hanging out, talking about RPGs and stuff. Uh, it's been a good show. Um, this is Geek Gab. We're here about once a week, about this time. Uh, next week, we have Jason on Spock scheduled to come on the show, uh, the other author of Galaxy's Edge. Um, and so we're looking forward to that. And I don't know if there's another movie coming out, but we may have to tack another movie review on the front of that. Is there another movie coming out? None that I'm aware of. Okay, we'll have to look. Um, did you guys see Death Wish, though? Yeah, we reviewed it last week. Oh, you did? Oh, I got to go listen to that. Okay, I'll do that right after this. In fact, that's the first part of the show. The first 20, 30 minutes of the show is the Death Wish review. But you'll want to stick around for uh, A Wrinkle in Time because that was a hoot. That was okay, really, cool. really funny. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, so this is Geek Gab. We're here at YouTube.com slash Geek Gab about once a week. Please subscribe. Uh and click on the little bell icon to double secret subscribe. Uh, like the video if you liked the video. And if you don't like YouTube and you want to listen to us on some other platform, we will be available. We are available on your any Android device that can download the Google Play Store. We are available on the web at soundcloud.com. And you can also download those SoundCloud episodes as MP3s and just play them to your heart's content. We are also available on the iTunes Store. Just do a search for Geek Gab, and we will show up in all those places and YouTube as well. Thanks for everybody coming uh, and listening and participating in the chat. One of the best things about this show is all the great, intelligent, and educated people. Absolutely no sarcasm, folks. I am telling you the truth. We have great, intelligent, and educated people who come and hang out in our chat. You should come listen to the show live. The chat is now persistent. You can watch it. If you come to YouTube, you can watch the chat and see the discussion that goes on. And you will know that I am not lying about that. So thanks for everybody coming and participating in the chat. We are signing off for today. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.